0: While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword Will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs? To capture me, every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him, and said to the people there, This fellow (coughs) was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God.
1: Thanks Anne, wonderfully read. Poor Peter. I've said poor Peter so many times over these last few weeks. Um, If you've not been for a few weeks, we're following St. Matthew's passion. Uh, we're going through, um, n- normally we just hear about this from sort of Thursday evening to Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and, and, and it's, uh, we don't really get the richness of the the, the, the Bible, the gospel message. Um, so Steve decided that we'd do it slowly over Lent, and I think it's wonderful. I think it's, it's really good to sort of get to grips with it and, uh, uh, and wrestle with it, if, if, if I'm honest. It's been it's wonderful. So we, we, we started off with the, the Lord's table. Uh, last week we were praying in Gethsemane. Uh, the disciples, of course, at Gethsemane couldn't keep their eyes open. Uh, Lord and Master, Jesus out of anguish, questioned his own father. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken away from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Today we come to Gethsemane. We continue in Gethsemane. The father didn't respond to Jesus in word because, as we all know, it was the father's will that Jesus would suffer. He did say, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. God didn't answer. Jesus had to suffer. Suffered to save a wretch like me. And you. today's reading we continue in Gethsemane Jesus praying alone yet in the distance the disciples can see flickering lights a group of soldiers cross the Kidron Valley and they are led by Judas it all happened at such a pace a brief conversation a hurried kiss on the cheek the soldiers move forward to take Jesus away this is all at night, but as we know, it's Passover. There would have been the light from a full Passover moon. So in the confusion and semi-darkness as the soldiers approached, Peter, poor Peter, needs to act. Peter has to do something to protect his master. Grabbing his sword, he takes a wild swing, aiming at one, no one in particular. The sword finds its mark, but not as Peter intended. If he hoped to scare off all the soldiers, it didn't work. If he hoped to inspire the other disciples that might have worked, had Jesus not stepped in? Again, I'm not sure they were inspired. This is not Peter's best evening. He lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. No doubt the servant fell on the ground and began screaming in pain. Blood must have been spurting out of the hole where his ear had been. You can see it. The soldiers around them would have drawn the swords, ready to kill Peter. But before things got out of hand, Jesus touches the servants here, healing, healing it instantly. And just like that, the crisis was over. It must have made quite an impression on the disciples because this little incident is recorded in all four Gospels. Only John's Gospel tells us that it was Peter who swung the sword and that Malchus was the servant's name. Only Luke tells us that Jesus healed his ear. When we think about what happened that night, the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus gets all the attention, but the disciples never forget what happened to Malchus. It seemed that important to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. If the early church never forgot this story, then no doubt it contained important lessons for every one of us. We can frame the question this way. How does a follower of Christ react when all is lost or what do we do when our dreams seem to disappear in the distance this little story offers several important answers and we react righteously when all is lost we react righteously when all is lost by refusing to give in to the impulsive anger we can easily understand Peter's desire to fight back. In the confusion of the late night, he saw his master Jesus being threatened, and Peter decides to fight back. And who can blame him? So grabbing a sword, he takes this wild swing, cuts off Malchus's ear. No doubt he meant to behead him, but the angel wasn't right, and I'm sure Malchus didn't stand still either. Sorry, not an angel, an angle. The angle wasn't right. <laughs> The angel wasn't right. So he lopped off his right ear. And in fear, anger and desperation, Peter has lashed out at the nearest target. His high priest's servant wounded him, but not killing him. Everything about this story, story makes perfect sense. You can hardly blame the disciples for thinking it's time to fight. And of course, we would expect it no less... From Peter, the volatile emotional leader who generally acted first and thought about it later. It's at this point that we recall the words of James writing many years later. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Slow to become angry. How many of us are good at that? Slow to anger. I'm sure there's a small amount of us that can honestly say, I am slow to anger. But for the rest of us, here's a message from the Lord. Your anger and God's righteousness generally move in opposite directions. Years ago, I remember listening to a Christian counsellor at New Wine giving a talk. uh, And she made a a, a remark, actually, that I've, I've never forgotten. She said, when you find yourself getting angry, ask yourself this question, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? Most of our anger stems from fear. And most of our fear comes from the perception that we may lose control. You, you know, years ago, I, I, were, I, were like a little, I were like a little red bull. To be honest, if somebody fired me up, I'd, I'd be off. I didn't even think about it. Act now think later. That was me. I was like a tornado. And, and, within, and, and in them seconds of being like a tornado, I could, I, I could have been capable of doing anything. And sometimes I did. I'll put my hands up, sometimes I did. But we've got to learn, what am I afraid of? Most of our anger stems from fear. And most of our fear comes from the perception that we may lose control. Stop and think about it for a moment. As long as we're in the driver's seat and things are going our way, we rarely get angry. But let things get out of control, as they did that night when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, and fear takes over. It's only a short step from fear to impulsive anger, and from sudden anger comes all manner of evil. Secondly, Jesus chooses to lose rather than winning the battle. How incredible is that? Jesus chooses to lose rather than winning the battle. Nobody likes to lose. I believe most people are fairly competitive. I know growing up, my brothers and sisters, they were, they were terrible. If my brother lost, he would, oh, he just got so angry. My sister was same. both hated losing, and the both still do hate losing. I won't play Monopoly with them, believe me. I, on the other hand, would rather have a good game and lose, unless you're watching England and France last night. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Oh, honestly. I know, shush. I'd rather have a good game and lose, but it wasn't a good game, were it? <laughs> okay, we're well, we going off at trap. But that's the point, isn't it? That, that, that's the point. You know, I don't mind if we win or lose as long as it's a good game. When we lose and have a bad game, well, that's different, different scenario. But most people do want to be on the winning team. There's nothing worse in some eyes than being on the losing team. It's very rarely at school I ever got picked because, because like I say, I liked a good game. I won't bother, I've never been bothered about winning or losing. I won't play with Mia Grace because she cheats all the time. I won't play with her. She cheats. So as says as I do. And that's precisely what the followers of Jesus are sometimes called to do. In Christ's kingdom, the values of the world are turned upside down. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells us, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Take up your cross and follow me. Sometimes when you follow Jesus, you've got to lose in order to win. And that's what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Brute force does not advance Christ's kingdom. We can't achieve God's work by bullying people into submission. When we try that approach, it may produce short-term results, but it always backfires in the end, because the call for brute force means that we don't really believe in God. If we did, we wouldn't try to take matters into our own hands. Verse 53 tells us, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Not angels. 12 legions of angels. That's going to be at least 72,000 angels. It's an army of angels. Do you think 72,000 angels could handle the soldiers that came out to arrest Jesus? But if Jesus had that sort of power at his disposals, why didn't he use it? Why didn't Jesus use that power? Well, verse 54 tells us, Jesus refrained from calling on those angels because he knew that his arrest was necessary to fulfill God's plan. Jesus said, it must happen this way. This is how it's got to happen. I don't blame Peter for not fully understanding those words. It's after midnight and he's tired, distraught, confused, he's angry, worn out, upset and he's despair. He wants to do something, anything that will rescue Jesus. But Jesus doesn't need Peter's help. Jesus doesn't want to be rescued. Jesus can can take care of himself. What seems to be The messy rush of events turns out to be the plan of God unfolding to bring salvation to the world. When evil seems to be winning, Christ calmly submits, knowing that in the end, God's will must be done. J.C. Ryle puts it in perspective. It's one of my commentaries. He says, He did not die because he could not help it. He did not suffer because he could not escape. All the soldiers of Pilate's army could not have taken him if he had not been willing to be taken. They could not have hurt an err on his head if Jesus or God had not given them permission. That's incredible, isn't it? (laughs) Thirdly, we must depend completely on Christ's supreme power rather than our own inadequate strength. Sometimes we just have to let go. But how hard is that for most of us to let go? Letting go doesn't exactly mean giving up. It doesn't mean passively sitting by while the world takes advantage of us. Letting go means giving up the right to always be in control. Letting go means admitting that you aren't calling all the shots. Letting go means that you choose not to manipulate others. Letting go means admitting that you don't have all the answers. Letting go means surrendering your fanatic emotions to the Lord. And finally, letting go means resigning your position as boss of the universe. Could God have made things turn out differently for Jesus? Well, yeah, of course he could. He's God. He could have arranged the events any way that he chose. But God intended that his son would die. Isaiah 52 states, yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, but has put him to grief. He has put into grief. God's intent to allow his son to die. Jesus had to die. Just take a moment to think about that statement. Jesus had to die. You realize why Jesus didn't fight back. He knew that without his death the whole world would be lost. So to serve God's greater good, he endured. The humiliation, uh, the humiliation of this owling mob. The false accusations. The brutal beatings. And the shame of death on a cross. But you know, Good Friday always comes before Easter Sunday. There's no resurrection without a crucifixion. And there are no shortcuts on the road to glory. Peter's wild wild attack, driven, no doubt, by desperate love, meant that he still didn't understand that Jesus had to die. Peter does not get this. Poor Peter. And that's why he relied on his sword to protect the Son of God. But it's pointless. The church's feeble instruments can do as little against the world's battalions as Peter's sword could have done against the guardsmen of Caesar. Caesar. And actually, it was all unnecessary. If you can command 72,000 angels and all of heaven beside you, you don't need Peter's insignificant sword to protect you. It wasn't un- Christian in attacking the servant. Peter contradicted Jesus' own teaching to turn the other cheek when you are attacked. It was unreasonable. Even if Peter had prevented the arrest, it would have accomplished nothing Of value. Our goal is to convert our opponents through love, not to intimidate them through force. It was unwise of Peter's vain attempt to protect Jesus. It would have hindered the father's purpose to bring salvation through the death of his son. And finally, it was unsafe. Peter's sudden action. To himself, he called. It made everybody look at him, and it made it easier for him to be identified later in Caiaphas's courtyard. His attempt to rescue backfired, and only actually Peter got hurt. And four, we have to extend Christ's unfailing love to those who have hurt us. How difficult is that to do? We're called to love as enemies, brothers and sisters. That's one of the most difficult things we'll, we'll ever do at times. After Jesus rebukes Peter for attacking the servant, he performs this unexpected miracle, restoring the ear. He touched the man's ear and healed him. It's unexpected. Jesus healed a man who is seen to be the disciple's enemy. Malchus had joined the group that had come to arrest him. And it must have happened so quickly. Peter's attack, ear flips off, blood spurts everywhere. Jesus rebukes Peter. And as we know, Jesus reaches his hand out, touches the bloody place where the ear had been, and suddenly the ear is restored. Peter did what we all tend to do when we are hurt and scared. He struck out in anger and confusion. Hitting and hurting the high priest's servant, it seemed like a natural thing to do. Hit back, get even, make someone pay, hurt them the way they hurt you. We've all heard them sayings. Hit back, get even, make someone pay, hurt them the way they hurt you. But even in this case, we see the craziness of retaliation. Why attack the servant of the high priest? He was only doing what he was told to do. But as we've seen, Peter swings wildly in anger and desperation, wanting to hurt somebody, wanting to protect his master. But cutting off an ear is not going to stop Jesus getting getting arrested. In fact, if Jesus had not healed the man, it would only further enrage the Jewish authorities. In trying to make things better, Peter actually made them worse. Jesus did what only the Son of God could do. He healed the one who came to hurt him. What if Peter had succeeded that night? What if he had led the other disciples in their desperate fight to the last man defence of Jesus? It wouldn't have worked, of course, because the Jewish leaders had the power of Rome behind them. But if somehow Peter had succeeded in protecting Jesus, Jesus would have never gone to the cross. God's plan of salvation would have failed. There would have been no Holy week, no Good Friday, no Easter. We wouldn't have been sat here talking about this this morning. Jesus is then carted off to stand in front of the Sanhedrin. The highest ruling council, the highest Jewish court, Caiaphas being the high priest. There's no lost here, no love lost here with these temple leaders. There is some uncertainty about the structure and authority of the Sanhedrin. It was presided over by the high priest and comprised of 71 representatives of the elders, drawn from Jerusalem, the immediate surrounding areas. It included members of the Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, as well as the lay aristocracy. A quorum was 23. The Sanhedrin council was not allowed to sentence a person to death. That was the right of only the governor, Pontius Pilate. The main business of the Sanhedrin was to frame a charge around Jesus. A charge that would have sufficient credibility to constrain Pilate to carry out that option. They knew, however, that their evidence is weak. Their evidence is non existence So they looked for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, even though there were many false witnesses that came forward. John 11, 47, 53 tells us that the Sanhedrin had already decided Jesus would die. They believed the activities of Jesus would put the Roman authorities against the whole nation. Caiaphas is saying, It is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. This reasoning was like a red herring. For a number of occasions, they discussed Jesus' death on the grounds of their opposition to his teaching. Jesus was a threat to them. Why? Despite many false ideas that were presented to help build a case against Jesus, nothing was valid until finally, we're told in our reading, two people came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now this is a serious charge. There was some substance to this charge as well because Jesus earlier in the week had actually said, destroy this temple and it will rise again in three days in which Jesus was speaking of the death and the resurrection of his own body, not the temple. However, now that this threat could be attributed to him, the Sanhedrin Council had something that they could work on. It was a charge much deeper than a threatened act of terrorism. For the temple in Jerusalem was the most holy site in Israel. And to threaten the temple was the highest disrespect to God and the Jewish people. A similar charge was brought against Stephen in Acts. Caiaphas asked Jesus to answer the charge, but Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by, living, by the living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the son of God. To which Jesus replied, yes. It is as you say, I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And then we get this dramatic picture at that point, the high priest tore his clothes off. He has spoken blasphemy, why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy to which the council responded, he is worthy of death is worthy of death. There's two clear charges. One of threatening to destroy the temple, the other of blasphemy. By early morning, they'd agreed that they had sufficient grounds to ask for the sentence of death from Pilate, the governor. While this is going on, the disciples are in disarray. Peter, despite his statement, saying, even if I die with you, I will never disown you. Even if I die with you, I will never disown you, Peter. Peter has denied Jesus three times. Firstly, to a servant girl. Then to a girl, another girl, sorry. And finally to a group of people standing around who recognised Peter's Galilean accent. To the latter group, he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know this man. I do not know this man. And Matthew dramatically writes immediately, a rooster crowed. Peter remembered what he had told him. Despite his promises to never leave him, he would not only leave but disown and deny him three times. Before the rooster crowed to welcome the dawn of a new day, only hours away, Peter, remembering these words, went outside and wept bitterly. Can you imagine God being arrested by the people he created God arrested by the people he created yet this had to occur in order for the death of Christ on the cross to be accomplished there was no other way for mankind to be redeemed forgiven and justified that we might inherit forgiveness of our sin and receive eternal life the trials, denials, and betrayals were all part of the plan, even though we see this is a setup, God, the Holy Trinity, sets everything up for the sake of you and me, you and me, finding the purpose of our existence, to bring us back into the union, friendship and peace with our Creator God, to deliver us from the destruction of sin and death, and give our lives a beautiful purpose which is set to have peace with God. And a relationship with Christ, our Savior. Has any of you ever watched the Passion of Christ? It's an incredible, moving film. When it comes to Easter, I always make a point of watching it. It, it, it just it puts it all in perspective. It, it's quite horrific. It's quite gruesome. And, and quite often, that's that's how I've looked at it. And I've I've looked at it, and I've looked at the Sanhedrin and uh, and all the people around this story, and thought. What a nasty set of people. How can they treat this man, Jesus, just a man at the time? How can they treat this man like this? And then you read this and you put it in perspective and you think, actually, that, that, that's how it's got to be. Because if that doesn't happen, none of us get salvation. None of us live. None of us get to the eternal kingdom because Jesus just dies. But Jesus didn't die. Jesus came back to life. Jesus was resurrected to save a wretch like you and me. Change all this world. We go from, it to cre- you know, all creation in a nutshell, starts off with God creating people. And then we have the fall. And then we have this crazy world that we live in. Yet Jesus comes in the midst of it all to try and get us all to love each other, to build up relationships with each other, to call us to be friends, to believe in Jesus, because he's God. And if we believe in Jesus, we too get to the eternal kingdom. So all this all this cruel, all this gruesomeness, a guy's ear getting chopped off. It's all part of God's plan. It's incredible. I think I've spoken enough. Let's pray. God behind us, God beyond us, God beside us. We thank you for Jesus, our shepherd, and our Lord, who goes ahead of us leading this way. We thank you for his going into the place of testing where prayer is stretched to breaking point before the cup of suffering, for he places his life in your hands. We thank you for his going into the place of betrayed where hatred meets weakness, where fear meets greed and Jesus' life is sold with a a kiss. We thank you for going into the place of denial where his disciples run and scatter and his closest friend turned his back swearing he knows nothing before those bitter tears flow. We thank you for his going into the places of rejection where false charges and convenience lead on to the violence and the mockery and the demand for his death. We thank you for his going before us through the places of testing and betrayal, denial, and rejection to Galilee and beyond. The place of encounter of new life that he promised even in the darkest hour. My friends, Jesus did all this for you and me, for a wretch like you and me, so that we may live. For that we give all our glory, all our worship, all our praise to you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.